Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Enterprise Podcast. This show is produced by Enterprise, your daily source of news and perspectives on business, finance, and regulation in Egypt. Our goal is simple, to help you get your head around what's next. In today's episode, we attempt to answer a few questions. Is your business ready to adopt AI? What would it take to get there? And what are the challenges you might face? Also, where do you even start? We sat down with three people who sit at the core of AI adoption in Egypt to address these questions and more. Our guests today include Ahmad Abaza, the founder and CEO of Synapse Analytics, which advises other companies on how best to infuse AI into their business. We also have Ahmed Rojdi, the analytics and data science lead at Vodafone Egypt. Projects he's led include an AI platform that recommends different services and packages to users. So far, over 11 million customers have benefited from that engine. And last but not least, we have Mohamed Selimin, the data, AI, automation and security leader at IBM Egypt. I am Gehed, Enterprise's What's Next editor and your host for today. Mohammed, why don't you start us off by telling us about AI and IBM? All right. So, you know, you don't have many IT companies that have been around for more than 110 years. And to do that, you need to be able to change everything about your company every few number of years, depending on the market trends and, and you know, what's new, where are the new areas of investment. And the last major transformation, which happened a couple of years ago, uh, I then kind of defined IBM's strategy around two areas, hybrid cloud and AI, all right? They are interrelated in a way, but if you look at how IBM is structured these days, AI is definitely um, at the core of its strategy. And how that translates to what they do in terms of investment and focus, well, if you look at, we know the whole AI buzz started a couple of decades ago, Right. It was, I think, 1997 when IBM, you know, created what we call the IBM Deep Blue, which was kind of a computer that won the Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion at the time. And then they chose another project to go for Jeopardy, a U.S. show with people being asked questions in a very uh, non-straightforward manner. And that was the second challenge. And again, it was won, I think, in 2011. And the whole idea is you you focus on the current main source of revenue, but you also invest for the future. That's how IBM is able to survive and to transform. We currently have a huge investment in AI, whether it's around our own products, uh, because AI is just can be a buzzword. But when you implement AI into different domains, like, for example, business automation, IT automation, Uh, governance, risk, uh, cybersecurity, resilience, and so on and so forth. And IBM has a very large portfolio spanning all of these areas. So one area of investment is implementing AI use cases in each of these products. That's one type investment. Another type is to work with, you know, world-leading establishments that are also investing in AI research, like MIT, for example. And I think we MIT IBM Watson AI Lab was founded in 2017 and is currently actively managing maybe more than 80 projects for AI real-world applications. Last but not least is IBM has been focusing a lot on the number of patents that its teams are uh, issuing every year. And I think IBM was a market leader for 28 consecutive years. And most recently, I believe maybe 25% of all patents issued by IBM, I think if I 
was 2020 around a total of 9,130 US patents, out of which 2,300 only specifically for AI. So I would say around 25% of all research effort at IBM at the moment is geared towards AI. Thank you, Mohammed. Ahmed Abaza, how about the global AI trends that you think are most interesting today? Like, what is it that has caught your eye? I think what's very interesting that you can find now retailers are thinking about artificial intelligence. You find F&B restaurants are thinking about artificial intelligence. So one of the very interesting fields that came out a few years ago is what we call MLOps or machine learning operations. And this is where now... We, we don't want to experiment anymore. We don't want static models. We want to build AI that is actually put into production, that is uh, interacting with clients every single day, that is getting smarter as we're working with it. And this is one of the very, very interesting things about artificial intelligence. And, you know, the thing is, there's this very, very famous guy who's very known in the field. His name is Andrew Yang. He just got a webinar like a few months ago and said that the community should move from basically what we call algorithmic-centric models to data-centric models. So basically what goes into this is that, you know, back when AI was just validating the model and getting the highest accuracy, now we need to move into the impact modeling of AI. Is it better to, you know, have in production a model that is 90% accurate on, for example, 10% of the data or having a 50% accurate model on 100% of the data? So this kind of shift in mentality is very interesting for the community and very interesting in general in the field. You know, really, really adopting AI, not just building models and putting them into experiment mode, into very, very static mode. We need to get them into production. We need for these models to be utilized by the business. We need to create a very, very clear ownership of the projects, who is responsible for it, how to make sure that the AI is being utilized and is, is having real impact on the business. Okay. Dr. Ahmed, based on that, how do you evaluate the development of AI in Egypt at this point? Ahmed has pointed to a very good uh, point that is regarding how teams start and how the companies actually start to build their strategy and which comes before first because some companies looking for hiring and hiring and hiring and then they got shocked that there is no real value for this. So I think it should be in some agile form. It can be identified from the strategy and going for production, as I said, like sprints, uh, like we have a problem that we hire uh, data scientist, that we have our engineer, that we hire uh, a business partner to be part of this project, uh, business that he actually puts KPIs for running this product. The gap and somehow um, is widening between academia studies and real industry. This gap, and somehow I know that there are some efforts and some initiatives to fill this gap, but I am feeling this gap with the basic obstacle between finding mass of data scientists and machine learning engineers with minimal qualifications to join. So if we fill this gap, I think we will and somehow be one of the pioneers in, in the region in this area. Uh, Mohammed, do you agree that there has been wider adoption in the past years? Yes, I do agree for sure. There's no doubt that the uh, also the COVID-19 pandemic also had a, a big role to play in accelerating all types of digital transformation, including AI adoption. And I think um, one of the most evident use cases is, um, for example, the virtual assistant or the what we have uh, 
in IBM, it's Boston Assistant, uh, the areas of voice bots, chat bots, all the types of solutions. With the need for better customer service in light of the pandemic and in light of people you know, working remotely, this has definitely exploded, actually, exponentially grew the past couple of since 2020. So yes, for sure, I agree that uh, there has been a much larger adoption in Egypt and elsewhere. And uh, Ahmed Abaza, how do you think this growth and adoption is going to shape in the coming years? So I think it would definitely require some muscle flexing because, you know, getting AI into um, a company organizations have to think about so many things at the same time. So one thing is incentive schemes, for example, because, you know, some incentive schemes were made based on, for example, how many applications we process per day. Now, with uh, getting AI into the organization, um, AI would definitely be more uh, effective and more productive in processing these applications. And now the people who were processing the applications would feel threatened and would definitely, definitely fight the change because their incentives are not aligned. So organizations, for example, have to think about how to create an organization where it would encourage adoption and avoid and mitigate this friction of, you know, um, the employees and the people working there feeling threatened by. So that's one thing. Now, the second thing is how the organization structure would change in general. If we take the application processing, for example, imagine a team of a thousand people, a department of a thousand people processing these applications, and now the AI can do it with just needing, you know, a fraction of those people to uh, process the applications now, the performance is not speed any longer because we have cracked this. We have cracked the speed of processing and the customers now wouldn't have to wait in long lines, for example, or wait for a few days to get approval for a loan, for example. So uh, now the KPI would change from speed, customer satisfaction, for example, to uh, you know granting better offers. So with adopting AI, the organization itself should change on every level from goals and KPIs from team organization, from incentive schemes. And uh, this is not easy. This is very difficult, especially when you have a market like Egypt that is very laborious market. You find a lot of the jobs are very, you know, um, I don't know how to say diplomatically, but a lot of the jobs can be very easily, you know, replaced. At the end of the day, we're a country where you have someone who presses the button for you in in an elevator. So there are so many things that we need to think about from a societal point of view and from uh, an organizational structure and strategy point of view as well. It's, It's definitely not an easy change. Okay. Which sectors in Egypt at this point are actually focusing most on implementing AI or adopting AI into their processes? Are there certain sectors that stand out in that regard, Ahmed? Telecommunication companies like Vodafone, like Mr. Ahmed, and IBM, you know, Oracle's um, Microsoft, these are, you know, the culture is built around technology at the end of the day. Also, banking is, is coming in very, very quickly. I think any industry that has big volumes of data, this, of course, you know, having these big volumes would create a huge appetite for AI and a very fertile soil for AI to be adopted in these organizations. I think retail is also coming in. E-commerce, of course, um, fintechs, uh, that's a no-brainer. Dr. Ahmed, you kept nodding along. And is there anything you would uh, like to add to that? 
Yeah, indeed. I like what he said, actually. Sure, uh, the basic idea is that if the company actually has this amount of data, it has an opportunity to join. Then comes the strategy and vision. But the examples Ahmed has uh, has mentioned, it's very potential. Already there are great players, as he said, in telecom. I think all telecom operators actually exploit AI and machine learning and big data inside their businesses with different levels, of course, but telecom is proceeding as a market in this field because of competition, because of real time. So AI and machine learning is not an option. You have to do so. Banking is coming very quickly and is evolving and believing in data and how to use it. Uh, the mindset has been shifted towards this. Uh, fintech sure it's it's very very promising and the main business and the ultimate business actually relies on data so and also uh, very uh, very famous retail they are asking actually for data and ai analytics for their customers from footfall analytics from market chair uh, uh, estimation so they are looking for smart targeting smart offers so uh, yes e-commerce actually is is one of these projects and this companies that cannot work without ai and machine learning so i totally agree with ahmed uh, has mentioned yeah um, Mohammed, I'm, I'm coming to you with a bit of a tougher question <laughs> uh, are we behind on AI adoption in Egypt? And if yes, why? If no, why are you saying no? It's really hard to say, Gehed. Honestly, um, I think the challenge is the same everywhere. Um, what are the major challenges to adopt AI? Uh, I think it varies from one organization to the other, but sometimes it's the data complexity and the fact that the data exists in silos and you need to connect these data points together to make make sense of, of you know what's behind it and try to adopt AI use cases around it. Sometimes it's a lack of skills and knowledge, data science skills and knowledge. So it varies from one organization to the other. But I can give you a few examples that we've been um, honored to work with some organizations in Egypt, I think that would be interesting for you to know. For example, um, we had a major project with the Ministry of Supply and Internal Trade. It's a uh, working with the Egyptian holding company for silos and storage. This is the entity responsible for the wheat supply in Egypt. And you know, wheat, very strategic commodity in Egypt. And they are working on a very large automation project. And we were uh, awarded uh, this project a couple of years ago. And the, basically the project is around automating the entire wheat life cycle, the supply chain from collection uh, sensors in the silos where it's stored, uh, temperature, humidity, and then there's some process mining. You can look at how things flow and maybe kind of start eventually uh, making or uh, understanding how this process can be improved through AI. And also eventually this data, this very, very critical and as, as my colleagues said, very valuable data, the crown jewels of every organization, can be used to create very valuable insights that can help the minister, the ministry, and the entire government plan ahead. And if you look at that use case, that's another, it's outside your traditional usual suspects, banking, telco, which are generally very, uh, usually very advanced when it comes to IT, IT adoption. But even the government sector in Egypt actually is adopting and is looking at how to make use of this. And th this is just one example, right? To answer your question, I think that the challenges are all over the place. You cannot take on a huge mega project with AI. You need to pick small, quick wins. You need to put in like 
kind of develop pilot project where you can showcase the value of AI and then that value, that ROI, when it's evident to the executives or to your leadership, they start looking at other use cases. And that's what he explained was happening in Vodafone. And I think that is the right approach. That's what we recommend to any of our uh, esteemed clients. I want to go back to what you said at the beginning, where you said that uh, there are industries that should be looking at AI. Are there any other industries where you think companies would benefit from integrating AI specifically, like they should look at it, but they're not looking at it yet? Honestly, I think everyone is looking at AI with varying degrees of interest or seriousness. I can't pinpoint an industry that is lacking or uh, as much as um, the maturity of the data. And remember, AI without proper high quality data, it's like garbage in, garbage out, right? You need what we call it the AI ladder. You start with collecting data, organizing data, and then you start putting in analytics and infusing AI into your business. And and the problem usually lies in the first couple of stages, not in the AI part. It lies in the data collection and data quality, data organization. And that's I think that's the key challenge that, especially in larger enterprise, because we're looking at enterprises that have been around for potentially 50, 60, even more years, hundreds of years in some cases. And legacy applications, data all over the place. And it's a real challenge making sense about, out of all that. All right. Great. Uh, Ahmed Abaza, you started talking about this previously, uh, but I wanted to get a bit more into it. What are the most prevalent misconceptions holding back AI adoption? You talked a bit about uh, people worried about job displacement. Are there any other misconceptions or general like prejudiced <laughs> opinions uh, that are holding back AI adoption? You know, <clears throat> AI replacing job is not entirely a misconception. It's... Um, it can in a lot of ways do that. And this is something from a societal impact point of view that, that needs to be addressed. So sometimes really the customers don't really appreciate the data they have. And, you know, especially in Egypt, because, you know, in Egypt, there are uh, monopolies of data. So you can find one organization in a certain industry uh, having so much data, uh, for example, uh, like 40% of the market data of the, of the industry market data, and they don't really know it and they don't really know how to use it. And sometimes they're very skeptical about how how qualified is my data. And we usually go in and look at their data and we can bring a lot of very, very beneficial output from, from their data. So what I want to emphasize is that the machine learning and AI field are, are, are very experimental fields. So you really, you know, you get the ingredients, you get the data and you try, you know, different uh, basically recipes. And at the end of the day, you come out with something that you might didn't really realize that you could come up with, you know, delicious, uh, delicious meal. So the thing is, it's really about continuous experimentation. So you know, I don't have the data. I don't. Uh, um, I, I don't have enough data. I don't have high quality data. You know, try to experiment and see what happens. And the worst case scenario, you'd be very much aware about the data that you're missing, and you'll start collecting the right data sets, and you'll you'll be uh, you know very aware. Also, as Mohammed said about the silos of data that you have and how to integrate them all together and how to you know create these uh, maybe data marts or feature sources that uh, you are able to build from them many AI models that could benefit you. So um, don't really shy away of AI with, with the prejudice that you don't have enough data. 
All right. Uh, Dr. Ahmed, is there anything you would like to add in terms of what is holding back AI adoption in Egypt? Uh, so there are some rumors between the, uh, the community of students and aspire to be the scientists uh, that the vacancies or opportunities in, in Egypt somehow are limited. Uh, I'm saying it's not true. You have this opportunity. Also, I encourage uh, companies to hire juniors. Believing in doing AI and machine learning, honestly speaking, it should be done through high management, top management, C-level. They should enforce doing so. Uh, because actually, if you go for a bank, like, like Ahmad said, the bank is already uh, is actually making revenue. There is no need, but you need to convince him that if you make X, he can make 2X, triple X. So if you convince the top management and the decision makers that you have this, all the logistic problems and looking for data and uh, data quality will be a matter of uh, time. I want to move on to uh, the part about data privacy. Uh, Ahmed Abaza, I'm going to start with you in that sense. Do you think that Egypt has done enough to ensure data privacy from a legislative perspective in the terms of AI, or can there be more that needs to be done? What I would think about is that the legislation is there. So um, the data law that came out, I think, a few months ago, um, and the, the new fintech law, there's a fine line between restricting innovation and at the same time, you know, uh, protecting privacy really well. So you could have very, very restrictive laws about data policies. And this is why I, I, I like very much that, uh, you know, before just, uh, you know, writing these laws and coming out with these policies, they asked, you know, they, they got communities uh, of experts and they got communities like from startups and fintechs and they asked them about uh, what do you think and uh, how can we make a data law that could uh, be a win for the consumer and at the same time win for um, innovative companies such as the fintechs to be able to use the data and be able to, you know, give better services to uh, their clients and to the consumers. So um, I think the data privacy law is a very, very sensitive issue. And you don't want to build laws that would restrict startups and uh, innovators to be able to use the data to build powerful products that are able to help the consumer and are able to provide better services uh, for the customer. And at the same time, you don't want greed to get into you know to take in the data and be able to uh, you know manipulate the consumers and basically exploit them uh, for money so this is a very sensitive issue and it's a continuous process and everyone should be involved the startups the experts uh, like Mohammed and Dr Ahmed uh, you know um, uh, the consumer themselves you know sociologists psychologists you know everyone should be involved because there is a bit of an arms race between all countries in the world for, for artificial intelligence and get into AI supremacy. So we really have a great shot to be pioneering uh, in the field. And we don't want to build laws that would restrict uh, our leadership in the field. And at the same time, we don't want to be, uh, you know, manipulating and exploiting customers and consumers. So yeah, that's my two cents uh, about the issue. All right. Uh, Mohammed, how do you feel about that? Even before AI, data privacy, I think, is something I, I completely agree with and I feel that is necessary. And I think the Egyptian uh, data privacy law is, again, in the same, uh, let's say, uh, spirit of uh, GDPR, uh, KVKK in Turkey, Poppy in South Africa. It, I think it's necessary because you're not only dealing with Egyptians, even, you know, Egyptian companies in, in many cases are uh, 
are dealing with with international clients from Europe and other countries. And I think this in itself, you need to be compliant with how the world sees data privacy. On a, on a personal level, I mean, me as a client, for example, when I feel that my personal data has been shared by someone to another entity without my permission, and I receive calls or emails or whatnot, it really bothers me. And I feel this is important. We need to respect that. And I understand Ahmed's point around, for example, if you need to take the permission of every client before you do any marketing campaigns, to do marketing campaigns, it kind of defeats the purpose because once you go there, you probably get a no, and then you can't do your marketing campaign. But again, it's tricky, but I think it's necessary. I think you need to have that sort of regulation and you need to abide by it because it does serve a, a higher purpose in my view. Dr. Ahmed, when, yani, when we take data privacy to a more company-wide level, what should companies deploying AI and, and looking to integrate and adopt AI keep in mind in terms of data privacy? Uh, every use case that I am working on uh, should be aligned those uh, privacy officers and inside the company, his partner inside the platform, what can we have acquired from the customer, what we can go for the customer with, what we can share with other departments, even not outside the company. We won't share data outside the company, but within the stakeholders inside the company. So aligning with the GDPR rules, this officer and his team, and make sure that this analytics and this type of analytics and somehow does not violate customer privacy. Um, there are some tricks, sure, that we have a, a potentiality of data, but we are restricted to use it from analytics perspective. Is this is one level? The communication perspective is second layer. Uh, so we adopt this from day one. The platforms that we have, all the analytics done. First of all, it's all encrypted information about the customer. We don't see the customer identity for analytics. Second, every use case is aligned with the uh, privacy officer and we have his uh, approval for this. All right. So, Mohammed, what do you think companies can do to ensure data privacy when they implement their AI strategy? It's interesting if you look at uh, AI specifically when it comes to data privacy, because at the end of the day, you use data to train your AI models to be able to get meaningful results. And I think that different companies have different approaches. And uh, in IBM, for example, we are very strict when it comes to customer data. For example, if you look at any AI model, we could split it into, say, three layers, where there is a base, an industry layer, which can be somewhat repeatedly used or repeatable between different uses, I mean, across industries, across clients. But the top layer, the custom layer, which is specific to the enterprise or customer data, this is not used to train other models outside that particular enterprise. And we feel this is a key differentiator for us because I think that it's not the same with other enterprises, with other companies, and it's not always necessary, to be honest. But for us, as a traditional large enterprise uh, technology vendor, this is key. And that's one aspect of it, the data privacy uh, and data protection of the customer's data. But also, there are other aspects around uh, AI, which also somewhat are related to uh, data privacy and what we call trusted AI and how you can ensure that AI does not have bias. So kind of battling bias in AI is something we in IBM, there's a lot of investment in and explainability, what we call explaining how that result was reached. Because we believe you cannot treat 
AI as a black box where you say, this is what came out from our AI engine without really trying to explain how, how that result was achieved. So this is also another area around handling data and how to explain the results that the AI engine produces. Since we have you on, Mohammed, I would like to continue the next question with you as well, because I think in the, coming from IBM, you would have some valuable insight there. What needs to be done to fully leverage Egypt's AI potential from an infrastructure perspective? I've been closely monitoring on a personal and professional level, actually, um, what's been happening with multiple government organizations in Egypt. I've also been reading your interesting uh, interview with Dr. Sely Radwan uh, um, the past couple of weeks, actually, and uh, all in the domain of AI in Egypt are familiar with Dr. Rodwan. We, it's very interesting, and 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 the, the work she's doing, and the work that MCIT is doing. And I think what what she explained around the center of excellence is a great, uh, let's say, launchpad for anything AI in Egypt. She even mentioned other countries that have undertaken this this type of of journey, and. Um, if you look at the infrastructure, there's, there's been a lot of investment in infrastructure in Egypt the past couple of years, not just roads, but also data centers and, and especially in the new capital and so on and so forth. I don't think we, we lack infrastructure. AI does not have to be super expensive or like a mega project. Like we said in the beginning, you can. it's all about selecting the pilot projects that make sense, that bring value quickly, and then you move on from there. So I think that I think that the government is prioritizing AI and adoption of AI, whether it's government or corporate or even startups, it's it's across the board. I think it's the right thing to do. And I think we're still to see obviously the the progress of all this, especially because of all the world uh, problems we've been facing the past couple of years with the pandemic and now the Russia-Ukraine war. All of these things obviously take a lot from everyone's attention span. But other than that, especially the center of excellence, I think that will be a great project for all of us. Uh, Ahmed, what do you think regarding infrastructure? What needs to be done or uh, what are you looking forward to? So, of course, this is something that doesn't end, right? So you keep on improving what you already have. And uh, one of the things that it's improving, I have to say, though, it's it's still requires some improvement to be needed, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, internet infrastructure and and so forth. Because, you know, sometimes you you need to have like high speed internet connection to be able to implement some of the use cases. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, I think, you know, AI softwares are also in need. So basically, many of the use cases that are being implemented, th- there is no really local um, mature software for to, to manage and scale artificial intelligence. I own a company that actually does that and I still see that um, there is a lot to be improved um, from us personally and and you know from from everyone as well. Um, I think also uh, maybe open data initiatives um, I think they're really needed. Uh, they say that Egypt has no data, and this is not entirely true. Uh, there are a lot of data um, found in different organizations and in different companies. Uh, now, how can we initiate open data initiatives to have these data sets available for data scientists, for researchers to be able to build you know, projects, startups, uh, research projects to help the community and to help businesses to be able to take decisions, for example, in, in the local market. 
How about incentives for the private sector? Like, uh, are there certain incentives that the private sector could use in order to adopt AI? Is there anything uh, the country should consider in that sense? I can see, for example, that the government is really investing a lot in capacity building, right? I mean, they've signed an MOU with IBM repeatedly, actually. I think the last one was to enable 1,000 university students in AI. And uh, and I know that they're doing the same with other vendors, which is great. So they are, in one area, they are investing in capacity building. That's one piece of the puzzle, let's put it that way. And then look at the potential center, you know, when the center of excellence is, is launched, that will be kind of your lab to, you know, develop use cases with some sort of a, a government subsidization or support in whichever sense they feel is appropriate, right? I think that's a great start if you look at that, those two things. You've got the people with the skills, hopefully, eventually, more people with skills. And then you've got the government creating this playing ground for this type of experimentation. And um, I think that's incentive enough if you look at uh, what else uh, can be. Because startups are looking, like Ahmed explained, they're looking at areas where they can use AI to bring new value, something that really creates a, a unique value proposition for what they're offering. And it can span any or every industry, actually. And, and that in, in itself is the incentive. I think that the government has been doing the right steps, if you will. And I, I personally believe that we will see a lot of more adoption in the next few years, in the short term. Ahmed, I want you uh, to basically give me a short rundown of how companies generally can get started with their AI efforts. I know it depends on what the company is and, and the sector it, it, uh, it operates in. However, are there some requirements like talent, human resources, tech infrastructure, and certain expectations that these businesses should keep in mind when they work on building an AI department? So uh, these, I think, are the main rules. Um, so the business analyst uh, slash business translator slash uh, business consultant who aligns um, the AI project with the business objectives. The data scientist is the one who builds the model. The software engineer slash uh, data engineer is the one who prepares the environment pre-building uh, and post-building. And then there is the MLOps engineer who makes sure who makes sure you know that the model is operating as uh, we expected. So these are the four main roles, I think, uh, that are extremely important. So if, if you want to build an AI project, you don't just get a data scientist. You, you have to get, you know, uh, the full team or you have to have the full uh, roles in place to make sure that you are successful with your project. And when you say MLOps person, it's basically machine learning operations, right? In software engineering and in app development, there is the DevOps. So basically, after the, the app is launched or after the software is launched, someone makes sure that everything is working correctly and uh, the users are getting what they're supposed to get. So it's the same rule, more or less, but into the AI and the machine learning uh, realm. Dr. Ahmed, did you want to add something to that? The starting point that I'm seeing is that you need to hire a lead. This lead has to fill the gap between technology, uh, data science, and business. He can hire the right guys with the right capacity to do so. And I think this guy is, I, I'm not saying rare, but it's not very common in, in, in Egypt. But we need to hire some guy with three backgrounds. Uh, this guy will hire Ahmed, has been illustrated from data engineering, software engineering, business translator or product owner, or whoever means a member of the squad. 
Uh, Mohammed, you want to add something to that? There are some products now also in the market that are, you know, tailored towards the business users and not the data scientists, kind of facilitating the use of machine learning models. In our case, for example, with IBM, you've got like a user, graphical user interface to allow you to adopt certain machine learning models with no prior data science knowledge. Obviously, this may, will probably may be limited in terms of what you can get out of it, but it is for sure a, a valid starting point in case you are unable to you know, make that type of investment of bringing in uh, a team of multiple uh, skills and, 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 and experiences. You've labeled it as an investment. Uh, I kind of like that because besides having only the operational expenses of getting a team and paying salaries and all of that, what are other costs that business will have to come up with and how can they best mitigate them when they build this AI department? Like any investment, get it depends, right? Um, are you deploying it on-prem? Are you deploying it on cloud? For example, most clients in Egypt are, um, you know, prefer the on-prem uh, deployment due to regulations and data sovereignty and so on. And we, we have that in IBM, for example. So most of our clients that you know we work with our uh, uh, AI uh, platform, if you, if you will, it's called Cloud Pack for Data, and it, they are uh, using it on-prem, which means that you require an infrastructure, servers, storage, and you need to maintain that infrastructure. You could deploy it on cloud. You could use a cloud uh, provider. That's a different uh, type of investment. But um, I think the ROI should ideally justify this investment. And that's, I think that's the starting point. If you pick the right pilot project and you show your enterprise um, executives or your investors, if you will, the value of you know, creating this uh, program or this project, things become much easier down the line. And a simple, a very simple um, example would be if you look at the people that have adopted or the enterprises that have adopted the virtual assistant, what we call conversational AI, right? It's, it's a very easy ROI calculation. How much does a call center cost you? What will you benefit from having a machine learning and AI uh, platform to, to take care, not of everything, because you cannot replace humans, but you augment humans. That's what you do with AI. Um, um, with certain use cases or uh, uh, that can be fully handled by AI, simple queries, for example, or things that have been done repeatedly before and the AI, uh, Watson, in our case, learned how to deal with it. Um, and then you start moving from there. So it's, it's really, um, let's say, um, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the sort of investment you need to make, but I think that you need to look at your enterprise, pick your low-hanging fruits and and start with something. I have one more question. How, and I'm going to start with Ahmed, um, how do you best internally communicate how AI can complement human work at the workplace? Like there are, I know we've talked about job displacement and how it's not completely untrue, right? But how can I make sure that when I tell my employees, uh, we're going to start building an AI department, we're going to start uh, optimizing processes with AI, how can I make sure that people don't go freaking out <laughs> around the workplace? One of our clients, it was a very interesting case where, uh, you know, we've built the model and the model was in production and <clears throat> we found a very, very low adoption rate. Um, this is how it came to my attention, the incentive schemes that uh, that I told you about. And uh, people were very frustrated about this technology and they really didn't want to, to make this project successful at all. 
So one of the things that we did, we actually sat with the client management and with the marketing department and the internal comms, and we built a, a great marketing internal marketing campaign about AI and how to differentiate yourself as a person who have worked with AI rather than a person who have not seen AI and has no experience working with the technology. Um, in this one department, there was, you know, a lot of reshuffling of incentive schemes and people were told that you're not going to lose your jobs. Um, uh, there will be more incentives and uh, they realigned the incentives about using artificial intelligence, about validating its output. This one was one of the earlier projects that we've uh, we've built. And, uh, you know, we were very naive about, you know, the technology back then. And we thought that, you know, we've implemented the algorithm. It will be a major success. And we found out that we were actually hated in the organization and no one uh, would want to adopt AI. And as Dr. Ahmed said, if it didn't come from the executive management itself, it wouldn't happen. They have to approve, they have to give the blessing, they have to, you know, reassure, <clears throat> reassure the people that we're doing this to become better as an organization. And as we grow, you're growing as well. So, yeah, I think you cannot wake up in the morning and tell everyone, guys, we have an AI, let's work with it. Understood. Um, Mohammed, your take on it. Our view is that uh, AI uh, at the moment is um, is augmenting the human task force. You know, there are... Uh, classically three layers of three types of AI, what we call the narrow AI, and then there's the general AI, and there's the super AI. I think that most of the use cases now, all of the vendors, IBM or any other technology vendors, are they're all, we're all playing in the narrow AI field. And the narrow AI field is, is simply where you tackle a specific use case and you come up with um, uh, insights around it, a better way of doing it or, or whatnot. But you cannot at this stage, at this, uh, in this day, and then you cannot replace the human uh, factor and, and the human task force. So um, maybe down the line, maybe 10, 20 years from now, we'll have a different discussion if we live to be that old. But if not, I mean, at this stage, I feel that we're augmenting the human task force rather than replacing it. That's number one. Number two, if you look at, for example, your uh, typical government organization, most of the people are um, buried in manual work. And the end result is you you may have unsatisfied customers, people that are going to these government organizations to get some paperwork done or whatnot, and on and they stay for in, in long queues or they take longer than they they should. And and if you bring in an automation platform, for example, where you can automate the entire workflow, that you win something. That's not AI yet, but you win something out of all pure automation. And then if you look at that process and then you start assessing how different tasks take different times with different people. You start getting like maybe assigning tasks, specific tasks to the people that do it better or do it faster. And that is a bit of AI there in a very simple workflow, right? And then that sort of thing, you're not replacing anyone. You're, you're simply making their lives easier, making their work done faster, and you're making it, you're making the overall customer experience better. One interesting thought about conversational AI we are embracing some technology inside the big data team we have called reflection model and we have built some models we have a lot of customer service agents that can set and finally an agent uh, and, and robot actually replies uh, for them so they asked alex about uh, what about us we, we are losing jobs he said very good uh, good response actually it's shocking but it was very realistic he sees it as it's a new opportunity for you 
Toulouse, is a dumb job, he said so. Dumb job to gain another new job. Thank you all for the tremendous amount of insight you've shared throughout this podcast. Subscribe to the Enterprise Podcast and stay tuned for more exciting interviews exploring what's next for business. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Remy, and wherever else you get your podcast. You can also check out our podcast, Making It, our interview show on how people like Hinda Shirbini from IDH have built great businesses right here in Egypt. And don't forget to become an Enterprise reader by subscribing at enterprise.press. That's enterprise.press.